Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Cassidy Cook, and this podcast is going to showcase my book, Liquid Lineage. I have decided to start doing summaries of previous episodes. I think that would make it a bit easier to follow, or maybe if you haven't listened in a while and you're just catching up. So, last week, we were left to wonder why Crane was standing at the door of his father's study. He had just removed his hiking boots and was about to enter to attend to some unknown business. Meanwhile, his mother Meredith, father Lachlan, and prodigy brother Rowan were seen by hundreds attending a science fair at the town center, where Rowan was set to receive acknowledgments for his genius. Mercy roams the halls as usual, doing her best to evade her brothers out of pure childish amusement. Here we are. I hope you all enjoy. You are listening to Episode 3, Chapter 3. Boots on the floor, next to Crane's confidence, he moves in slowly, breath shallow and thin, anorexic air. Lips slightly ajar and dry, his dark hair falls in a few curly tendrils over his thick eyelashes but doesn't wipe them off his face. He may feel as if it is helping keep him hidden. His fingers are held by his side, close and spread wide. Afraid that the nervous sweat would fuse them together in a sticky sliminess if they were to touch. The first order of business to be handled within the study is to look at the flyer sitting on his father's desk, which reads, Yellow Hills Young Minds Society Annual Science Fair held at DREPA Town Center. Okay, Crane whispers to himself, they're at the DREPA. That's two hours away. Crane flips over the flyer to read the event schedule, lightly printed on the back. Rowan will take the final question at 3 p.m., and if they leave immediately following his undoubtedly impeccable answer, they should be home a few minutes after 5. That's at the very earliest. He glances at the grandfather clock perched proudly in front of him, realizing he has no ballpark guess as to what time it is currently. He has been in and out of his mind all day. Wandering the blindingly bright hallways for hours has had a strange insomnia-inducing effect on his equilibrium. He adjusts his eyes by altering between squinting and stretching them, hoping to find a comfortable middle place for them to rest. 327. He has plenty of time. With this revelation, he sighs and drastically loosens his body language. The room feels immediately freezing as the heat of excitement falls off of him, melting into a cold sweat beneath his teal and black embroidered silk pajama set. It doesn't take much time at all before Crane makes himself at home, in the one place inside his home, that he should not. He lowers his shoulders to relax his lungs and takes the first full breath since entering this room, before moving his right leg, stepping less carefully this time past the crescent moon-shaped bookshelf on his left. This room is circular, quite literally. In the center of the back of this golden mansion lies the study. The walls here curve out and around, spiraling upwards. Its height is approximately equivalent to the height of the third story of the house, parallel to Meredith's room, overlooking the southeast edge of the forest. A large round skylight replaces the ceiling of Lachlan's study, a modern replica of the hollow concrete pillars on castles. These features are not purposeless. They are nostalgia-inducing for Mr. Luker, memories from when these lands looked a lot different. 
in simpleton terms, a lot less shiny. The gold belonging to the Lucre family used to be needed for war, weapons, trade, and protection. In the modern era, as Crane, the lineage's first self-admitted mentally ill seedling, stands alongside his father's prized possessions, he can't help but feel lesser than the solid objects. Any one of the Yellow Hills residents can tell what the family's gold is being used for now. Show. Utter show. It wouldn't surprise anyone to know that not only the outside of the house shines this brightly, but the inside does as well. It wouldn't surprise anyone to know that, no matter where you set your gaze in this place, it's most likely going to land on something gold. One thing that might surprise some to know is that the only area in which you will not find a speck of gold is inside the study of the Patriarch himself. Instead, his sanctuary is filled to the skylight with rocks. Floor-to-ceiling rock piles outline the round room from all angles, there are three large stacks scattered around the center of the room, one by his desk on the left side, a larger one to the side of the bookshelf, and a small one behind the door as you enter. Over the recent years, the numbers of rocks in his study have drastically inclined, spilling over into Lachlan's workspace. Crane often wonders about these rocks, where his father gets them and what purpose they serve. It's a brain magnet he has been unsuccessful at detaching himself from for years. Every rock looks exactly the same. Same shape, same size, same color, maybe a slight difference in shade, or maybe one has a slanted edge and one doesn't, but as close to identical as two rocks can be, and his father has hundreds. He shakes his head to quiet the pondering and tells himself that's a case for another day. Today, he has other matters to attend to. Moving around the pile of solid gray orbs on the floor, Crane heads to the back of the study and, on his way over, finds himself staring at the palm of his left hand, where earlier he had written the number sequence to open the safe room. He can't remember doing this, but he also can never remember the code for some reason either. It's only kept as a backup in one place in the entire house in case anyone forgets, and the only ones who know where it is, is the family. The lock code is a five-number sequence and is deeply engraved on the bottom of a lion's paw statue at the base of the grand staircase. This is a location you would need to pass by anyway in order to get to the study, also easily accessible, but only if you know where to look. It seems, however, that Crane won't be needing the blurred number sequence today, as the gray charcoal door is already cracked open. Curious, he says out loud while intentionally drawing out the S at the end. As he inserts himself deeper into the crack between the door and the exterior of the safe room, he covers his eyes with his right hand and continues to push the door open with his left shoulder, feeling his way through the dark air in front of him. With his eyes cloaked in black, he feels as if his other senses are heightened, although right as this thought invades his mind, he is comically deaf to Mercy as she begins leaping into his arms. Shadowy eye to shadowy eye, he grabs her shoulders with both of his hands to allow her to look at him. He feels an unexpected parental figure rising up in his bones to strengthen him. You know you're not supposed to be in here, Mercy. What are you thinking? Oh, you're in here too, though she says, completely missing the point he was scrounging to make. 
I am in here looking for you, Mercy. He places a hand on her back and adds a small amount of pressure, guiding her out of the safe room. As they walk, he closes the door behind him. It latches into place and he says, I know we were playing hide and seek, but rules are still meant to be followed. You know this. Mercy, still riled up from the thrill of being found, finally turns to release herself from his hand, faces him, and responds all snarky. You're awfully sour today. Mimicking Meredith from earlier this morning, when Rowan shared his presentation before the science fair. He grew perturbed when the family continued to ask what he thought were stupid questions. Oh, how did she know that? Crane thinks to himself. How did she hear Meredith say that? I was searching for her during all the early hours. Why would she just hide and watch? Mercy, were you in the center room with us for Rowan's presentation this morning? Why didn't you come out? He stops walking and simultaneously shrugs his shoulders, but Mercy maintains eye contact while walking backwards. Mer, I was in the forest for hours and you were here the whole... Mercy! He exclaims loudly, but it was too late. Mercy was already halfway to the ground as she trips over the pile of rocks to the side of the bookshelf. Falling backwards, both hands get thrown behind her to break her fall. But as soon as she does this, her arms become pendulums and the left one runs across something on the third shelf, causing it to tumble alongside her. Unsurprisingly, Mercy showed incredible resilience. 10 out of 10. She twisted her spine and caught herself with two hands facing the floor. With one foot bent backwards, she awkwardly throws the previously caught leg over the one acting like a kickstand, stabilizes herself, and becomes vertical. Crane and Mercy simultaneously enter a period of silence. All four of their eyes remain locked on the single key and nine broken pieces of rock mocking them from the floor. Crane goes deeper into the silence, leaving Mercy back in reality. He does this quite often and calls them moratoriums, a short period of time in which suspension occurs. He often finds himself here suspended in every way, mentally and physically suspended, suspended in time. He is still so young and has not yet connected the dots. The answers will be given to him the day that he begins to ask the question, what is the relationship between when these suspensions occur and what or who causes the high-stress responses he continually experiences? He does not know yet that there is in fact a common denominator and he is not randomly episodic. Mercy knows too well the look on her brother's face. She wastes no time taking full advantage of her thoughtless supervision. Leaving Crane wide-mouthed and somewhere distant, she flees from whatever fire she created inside of him. Picking up speed, she tumbles out of the study, accelerating down the main hallway through the center room and past the grand staircase. When she came across the Golden Lion statue, she quickly tapped its cold hard head as she ran by, gesturing one of two things, either good boy or don't tell anyone you saw me. She pulls open the heavy front door using both hands, and leaving it open, she dances out of the mansion in floppy, flamboyant movements. The staircase is slightly wet from a recent spring shower. Mercy nearly slips out of her ballet flats, so she removes them completely. Her undefiled feet don't need protection. She needn't any kind of protection where she's going. She knows the forest well and nothing will hurt her there. 
As she makes her way around to the back of the house, she makes first contact with the increasingly tired sun. The backyard is the brightest at this time of day. The sun, nearly level with the horizon, peaks egotistically through the trunks and their trees. In its deep, orange, and concentrated manner, it slaps the south side of the house every evening like a tsunami. Waves of copper flood every possible nook and cranny as if the sun grows hundreds of arms to reach out and molest the mansion. Every night at around this time, the sun seems to grow mad with power, frying anything it lays its hands on, making it untouchable to mere flesh. This is inconsequentially Mercy's favorite time to play in the forest. The heat feels like water to her, like diving into a new level of gravity entirely. She, somewhat like Crane, is too innocent to know the true reasons why she may feel the way that she does. Realistically, Little Mer loves the warmth because she's the only one in her family that needs it to survive. Because everything in her home is cold, fruitless, and forbidden, and yet, right behind the freezing fixture, lives a breathing sauna aching to be used up. There is a plenty of fruit in this warm forest, and none of it is forbidden. Speaking of temperature and prohibited places, the study where Crane was standing was almost 12 degrees colder than it was in what felt like just minutes ago. The lower levels were stealing the sun from the skylight. The room begins to gray, and the harsh lines of the furniture begin to blur. Still deep in his fixation, Crane's hands are noticeably stressed. His fingers were pointed out as far as they could reach, all spread apart intentionally and stretched out dramatically. He is only released from the imaginary chokehold when he feels Meredith's skinny fingers wrapping around his tiny wrist. Crane, Meredith whispers. She knows that even if Lachlan hears her in here, he will be asking questions she won't have the answers to. So, she doesn't waste time doing the same with her son, fully grabbing his wrist, forcibly yanking him out of the room, which in turn yanks him out of the spell. His now clear vision immediately grasps the key on the ground laying amongst the broken rock pieces Mercy made. Guys, I want to thank you so much for sticking with me all the way through chapter 3. From here on out, I really do hope that the summaries assist in clearing things up and helping keeping it all in flow. So if you have had a moment where you find yourself confused, bear with me, the characters, everything will become a lot more cohesive as the puzzle pieces begin to come together. But I want to thank you all so much for getting this far, and until next time, stay solid. See ya!